0: Right? So being willing to set aside what you can do um, and what you have the freedom to do, being willing to set that aside in some cases for the sake of a higher calling. And that higher calling is unity in the body of Christ. That higher calling is the work of the gospel in the world. And, you know, is drinking alcohol, for example, so important to you that you're willing to sacrifice, um, you know, gospel witness
1: Hey, welcome to Whitefields Community Church Sermon Extra. Hey, great to have you with us once again this week. I'm with you, here with Pastor Nate Katie, pastor of Whitefields Community Church here in Longmont, Colorado, and we have started a new series, uh, still actually in the Gospel of John. Uh, if you've been with us this whole time, we were looking at the the seven I am statements where Jesus was talking about, you know, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the bread of life and these kind of uh, statements. And uh, if you missed any of those or, you know, whitefieldschurch.com, Come and you can download them. But now we're staying in the Gospel of John and we're going to look at the seven um, the seven signs. And so our series is called So That You May Believe, a study of the seven signs uh, uh, Jesus performed in the Gospel of John. And this week we were in John chapter 2 verses 1 through 11. And we looked at the sign of Jesus turning uh, the water into wine there at the wedding celebration. The title of the message was From shame to celebration. And uh, if you missed that sermon, whitefieldschurch.com, you can get over there and download it. Or if you YouTube, you can watch it on Facebook. And of course, any of your favorite streaming platforms, whether that's Apple, Google, or Spotify. And if you would, it just really helps us out, you know, like, subscribe, give us a rating and a review. And uh, that just kind of boosts us up in the algorithm as people are, are searching, you know, searching who is, who is God? How may I believe what these kind of things? And we can provide them with Christ centered, gospel centered answers to their questions. But so this is the first of, of seven weeks that we're going to be looking at these, the, the, the signs that were performed and John refers to them in the, in the gospels as signs, not miracles, but actually signs. And the first one here being at in the, um, John chapter 2 And so very interesting I know we didn't really Kind of talk about this at all um, You know Because it kind of takes away From the point But I think it's worth us Having discussion today Even maybe we don't come to You know Definite conclusions on, on some of these things Where people might feel comfortable With that particular conclusion But you know You set the scene We're talking about Jesus is at this wedding feast And as you talked about In your sermon These wedding feasts Where weren't You know you know, a couple-hour affairs like we do here, drive-through McDonald's-type wedding celebrations. You know that we do in the West here. These were seven days. These were long things. People came and went. The party just kept going, and 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 so you have, you know, you, we're already a couple days into this party. We're not how sure how many days it was, but then we're running out of wine, and so. Jesus then performs this miracle, this sign and turning this wine, uh, water into wine. And so, you know, the question could be asked that, you know, as the kind of the stance that the Bible kind of takes against drunkenness and wine and all these kind of things and of what, you know, what we made it here in the church as well, you know, you've, you've already got a bunch of people that are, have indulged, you know, and you Jesus now not only making wine but he's making really good wine and wouldn't you say that he know, he's adding to the intoxication of this you know not necessarily you know um solving a problem here, but adding to a predicament, you know, would be kind of maybe a pushback on this, you know, when people are looking at this idea of, of wine and and all the stuff that we kind of, you know, that floats around. so, you know, let's just kind of start our discussion
0: there. Kind of like, what was Jesus thinking? (laughs) Yeah. So, um, yeah, is Jesus encouraging intoxication by creating 150 gallons of very good wine um, <clears throat> okay, so what is he doing? Is, that's an easy question to answer, um, thankfully. And the, what he's doing is he's fulfilling Old Testament prophecies, which said that when the Messiah comes, his coming will be characterized by abundance of wine. Mm -hmm. So there you go There it is Abundance of wine Furthermore wine Speaking of celebration Even in Psalm 104 Right Mm -hmm. uh, You've given grain To feed animals And you've given Or the, the plants of the earth The grass of the earth To feed the animals And wine to gladden The hearts of men so it's this whole thing about celebration um, and merriment being characterized by wine. You know, that's not actually unique to the Christian story either. I mean, this is, uh, and the Bible, I mean, this is something that's true of all ancient kind of, uh, beliefs they would talk about, you know, in their stories, their lore, they would always talk about, um, Dionysius, for example, causing the forest to flow with wine as a sign of abundance, a sign of celebration and things like that. And so this, this thing, which culturally was very prevalent and, um, and yeah, I don't. I think the reason he did it is clear. It's a mm-hmm. fulfillment of who he is. It's a foreshadowing of why he has come. What's so interesting is how he does it, right? He uses these um, hand washing, ceremonial hand washing stations in order to do it, which also, as we talked about on Sunday, foreshadows and explains what he came to do.
1: Mm-hmm. So let's just talk about that word wine for a second. It's it's definitely a, you know a polarizing type of word within the church and it within the bible you know it's also you know proverbs 20 verse 1 says wine is a mocker a strong drink and a brawler and whoever is led astray by it is not wise there's not a you know Ephesians five do not be drunk with wine. Uh, you know there's there's envy drunkenness orgies and things like this galatians five twenty one you know, there's so many different verses out there that kind of put this idea of drinking wine in such a negative light. Um, you know so we we I think it, you know we've talked about hermeneutics. You know, it's it's like what are we bringing to the Bible in order to, you know, um, define a particular word? Define wine. So you're you're thinking about some people who maybe had super negative experiences within their families, maybe their kids, maybe their father, they've seen them drunk. And they, and so they bring this like, well, you know, a zero tolerance policy, uh, a type thing. And then you have those that kind of on the other side, well, you know, it says, don't be drunk. And so what is that? You know, Uh, you know, where is that, uh, you know, line and how far can I go against that line? And they kind of want to live in the liberty of that. And so, What what can we, you know, what kind of some guidelines can we, when we're looking at the Bible and we're talking
0: about this particular word wine, what kind of guidelines can we apply to that? Okay, so I would put it like this The Bible assumes that people are drinking wine and then tells them, do not overindulge to the point of sin. So you could think about it like this The Bible is not encouraging anybody, with one exception, to drink wine. The one exception is Paul is telling Timothy to drink a little wine medicinally for his stomach because it would help him. It seems that he had maybe ulcers is mm-hmm. maybe likely. Um, so one occasion, somebody is instructed to drink wine. Every other occasion, it's assumed that people are drinking wine, but then they are told not to do it to the point of sin. And, um, and I think that that's a good guideline to follow. Like we... We don't want to make rules where the Bible hasn't made rules. That was the, that was the mistake of the Pharisees. They mm. created all these, what they called the hedge or the fence around the law, right? In other words, the Bible drew a line here and the Pharisees would say, well, we're going to draw the line a little bit over here to make sure that we don't even get close to the line. What we've always said around here is this. It's like if you read um, Galatians chapter five, for example, if you are walking with the Lord, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh, right? Like, in other words, if you're, if you're always wondering where's the line so I can know not to cross it, you're basically starting in the, in the wrong place. Instead of wondering where is the line, you want to be on the other end saying what most pleases the Lord, And then I want to live my life in the way that brings God the most glory, not trying to always watch out lest I cross the line into sin. If you're always trying to seek how you can live for the Lord and please the Lord, you're just not even going to go close to the line because that's not what you're even thinking about. You're not obsessed with the line. You're obsessed with following the Lord. If you do that, like Galatians 5, if you walk in the spirit, you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. That, That would be our number one advice. Now, on the other hand, we should know where that there is a line and the line is uh, drunkenness is very clearly demarcated in the Bible as a being a sin. And the reason is because it's not exclusive to alcohol, right? This is, you could put it this way, do not be under the controlling influence of anything, whether that's a substance or, or whatever it is, don't be under the controlling it, influence of anything except for the Holy Spirit. That would be a summary of what it says in Ephesians chapter five, when it says, don't be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So don't be filled with wine, be filled with the Holy Spirit. They're juxtaposed. And so we don't want to be under the controlling influence of any substance, neither alcohol or cannabis or anything like that. We want to be, um, under the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit. And anything that takes away from that um, is clearly sin. And the reason we, you know, you mentioned to me an earlier passage where Aaron and the priests mm. in the book of Exodus, I think it was.
1: Yeah. Were Leviticus. Told, yeah.
0: Oh, in Leviticus, we're told not to drink wine lest it uh, blur their judgment when they go into the holy place. So they needed to be sober minded so that they didn't do wrong things, and there is, you know, an assumption that perhaps this is what happened to uh, Hophni and Phineas, mm-hmm. who were the sons of, um, was sons of Aaron, uh, of Eli, Eli. Yeah. That's right, the sons of Eli, and that they did something wrong in the temple, and it could have been tied to drunkenness. At least there's some allusions to that, and so I, I think that that's very clear. And I would put it this way: like, I think what the Bible would say is, look, if you're going to drink alcohol. Um, then you should be so careful about not becoming drunk Mm -hmm. that you're almost like almost over the top with your carefulness about it.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point to make. And, you know, just something to think about as Christians in this world that we're living in, why in the world would we not want to be sober and thinking straight You know, why would we give ourselves over to something that might, you know, encourage us to compromise the gospel in any way, you know? So there's, there's so much at stake. Why would we give ourselves over to something that could cause us to, you know, the Bible talks as Paul says, I will not drink, eat meat or drink wine. If it stumbles my brother, you know, there's just so much. And, but for our own, you know, as it says, as, as Aaron, you know, Aaron, you know, Do not go into the temple. Be sober-minded. You have to be discerning, you know, and God's calls us to be discerning, right, as Mm -hmm. as Christians. And which brings us just, you know, if we take it one more step, you know, we have Proverbs 31, it says... It's not for kings, 31 verse 4, Olam, well, it's not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. And so that kind of, you know, steps, let's, let's just not, let's take it from like the congregation, but let's take it maybe... What are, what are things we could say to leaders, leaders within the church uh, about dealing with this particular topic in their own personal lives, you know, and in their families and things like that?
0: Yeah, you know, we just studied through 1 Corinthians and a big part of 1 Corinthians, I mean, Paul does it for several chapters, goes on this lots of illustrations and examples Of how important it is that we care about the gospel more than we care about our own personal liberties, right? So, being willing to set aside what you can do um, and what you have the freedom to do, being willing to set that aside in some cases for the sake of a higher calling. And that higher calling is unity in the body of Christ, that higher calling is the work of the gospel in the world. And, you know, is drinking alcohol, for example, so important to you that you're willing to sacrifice, um, you know, gospel witness or mm-hmm. relationships with other brothers and sisters. Now, some people might say, okay, well, what if somebody doesn't like anything? Like, what if it offends somebody that I'm not a vegetarian? What if it offends somebody this and that? Uh, ultimately, you end up just walking on eggshells all the time. I would say, look, the goal isn't to always just walk on eggshells and never offend anybody. But the point is, if something, if there's something where somebody doesn't see eye to eye with you on that, then don't do it in such a way that would offend them before you have the opportunity to come alongside them and have that discussion, right? So mm-hmm. if, you, if you're committed enough to be willing to come alongside them and have a discussion and work through that thing so that you don't have to uh, just never do anything ever again, right? Then cool. But if you're just going to say, you know what? I don't care what you think because I've got freedom to do whatever I want. That's the wrong attitude, um, as far as this, though, there's an interesting verse. I like that one you brought up about Proverbs 31. And I've heard people go one step further, and they'll tie it to uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, where Peter, speaking to believers at large, says, you are now in Christ a royal priesthood, a holy nation. right?" And so if it's not for kings to drink wine, o Lemuel, mm-hmm. as he says there in chapter 31, of Proverbs, um, then does that mean as we, as Christians, we are called to have this royal priesthood, this, um, you know, the priests weren't allowed Mm -hmm. to drink alcohol either. Therefore, should we not drink alcohol? I think it's an interesting argument I think, on the other hand, you you juxtapose that or weigh it against the fact that Timothy is a church leader in in the early church. He's instructed to drink wine for his stomach. Um, other people, it's just assumed that they are drinking wine. And, um, and so I think that you balance those two. Keep the principle the same. We don't want anything to get in the way of our gospel witness. And, um, and we never want to get to the point where we say, I'm going to do what I want because I have the freedom. Once you start saying that, I think you've crossed the line. Like, I'm going to do this because I can. Well, that's not a good reason to do mm. it. Now, um, on the other hand, if it's something where you're like, well, God created this, it's good, and I can enjoy it, and I can do it in a way that honors God and, and doesn't uh, do anything wrong, I would say I think that there is some liberty there. But again, um, I would say be cautious to the point where you are almost extreme in your caution. Um, One other thought is, you know, some people will come with this argument and they'll say, well, the wine they drank that Jesus made, it was non-alcoholic wine. It was the O'Douls of wine, right? (laughs) Jesus got them some non-alcoholic wine. Um, I think that, that, again, that's the hermeneutic point that you brought up, which is uh, hermeneutics, a lens through which you read the Bible. If you've already decided that wine is always bad, And therefore, Jesus can't do something bad, so why would Jesus give people wine if wine's inherently bad? Therefore, you must conclude that it was non-alcoholic wine, even though there's no indication of that in the text. In fact, just the opposite, it says it was very good wine. Mm -hmm. And um, one interesting thing I brought up on Sunday was this passage from Isaiah, where Isaiah talks about in the age of fulfillment, he says, on this hill, you know, you will have a feast for all nations, Aged wine. Well, aged wine is most certainly alcoholic mm-hmm. in nature. So I don't think uh, the Bible, when it talks about wine, is necessarily talking about non alcoholic wine.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's a good point to bring up. I was just thinking back when you just said talk about walking on eggshells that somebody says, you know, vegetarian or vegan, like being addicted to being a vegan is kind of different than being addicted to alcohol. <laughs> like, yeah. Nobody's going to you know, necessarily die in a drunk tank, you know, being addicted to veganism. But, right. you know, but I totally, people don't necessarily take those arguments too. They, they're they looking for, as you've talked about, the what is your focus? They're looking for a way to to justify their behavior. And I think, you know, I think that's basically the point of what we're talking about is if you're looking for a way to justify your behavior in light of the gospel, then that's the wrong question you should be asking. You know, it's like, how better can I serve those you know that God has given me, whether it's my family, whether it's my friends, and if this is something a barrier to the gospel, then as Paul said, I will not drink, eat. I will not eat meat. I will not drink wine, if it stumbles my brother. And you know, maybe that's just a, a great point to take away away from that. Is that that's not just the point of the passage. The point of the passage is is the gospel that. Jesus clearly portrayed in the sign that he you know that he made turning the water into wine using cleansing pots and and those kind of things and as you said the disciples probably who you know Later on, when he said, this is the, this is my body, you know, uh, broken for you. This is any, the cup of wine. He said, this is my blood shed for you. Where they, you know, did they think of that sign?
0: Yeah. And, and to that, one more thing I wanted to bring up is that, you know, there's a really interesting thing. I mentioned it briefly on Sunday, but it's worth noting that um, the wine would have been the color of blood, right? Mm-hmm. And it would have reminded them that one of the first miracles that Moses ever performed. And, and by the way, this is something, if you really want to go deep mm-hmm. on the gospel of John, what you need to go deep on is the Old Testament allusions, right? And so um, here's one that it says that the creation of the world was a celebration. In the book of Job, it says that when God created the world, that the angels rejoiced, and you could say that that rejoicing, the celebration of creation, was broken when sin came into the world. So what did Jesus come to do? Restore the celebration that was broken by sin, coming into the world. And how did he do it? By shedding his blood. OK, now go back to Moses. Moses turns the water of the Nile into blood, turns it red. And, and then what does Jesus do? Comes as the greater than Moses turns the water that's used for ritual cleansing, he turns that into wine that later we find out is an allusion to the blood that he will shed. And yet Moses turning the Nile into blood was an act of judgment. Mm-hmm. Jesus turning the water into red wine was an act of speaking of the judgment but not the judgment that we would suffer but the judgment that he would take in our place so these old testament illusions that were all a part of what jesus is doing this is what makes this series so incredible and there's more of that to come in the future weeks i'll tell you
1: wow okay well that's that's kind of why we do these sermon extras is to go deep you know, kind of dive in, maybe take a point, you know, that wasn't mentioned on Sunday and maybe chew on it a bit longer. And so that's just something to think about, you know, just so these Old Testament allusions and, and Jesus, you know, alluding to those things in the New Testament as well. So just something to think on. Hey, what, what did you think about that? You know, let us know. That's, uh, you know, as we're going to this series, I hope you can, you know, this is just a place to start, you know, that's what John said, so that you may believe. And this is a great series to be sharing with your friends and for your families. Uh, you know that might not know the Lord yet, but they will. And uh, so this is just uh, something to think about. And the WhitefieldsChurch.com. If you missed it, subscribe, like, and we look forward to seeing you next week. God bless.